Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Well, welcome back to yet another Light Bears podcast. This is Brent Art with Light Bears Fayetteville, and today's topic is soteriology, uh, namely salvation. Uh, where does salvation come from? What is it? What are the the different components of salvation? And to shed some light and to give us wisdom, we have uh, Christ Community's very own Hunter Bailey to help us do that. Hunter, thanks for being here, man. Excited to be here. So, Hunter, as we uh, as we look at a topic like salvation, uh, and and you talked about this last night at our institute class, but what why is uh, why is salvation not merely just a decision or a transaction? So, speak into that a little bit. Yeah. Salvation is not merely a transaction or decision or a point in time because biblically, salvation is a person. Mm. It is the person of Jesus. He is salvation. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. And salvation is primarily oriented not around our decision to follow Jesus. That's a very important thing. Uh, our decision, our faith is, is vital to that experience. But the primary aspect of salvation is that we are united to Jesus. To be a Christian is to be united. That is the primary category of what it means to belong to Jesus. It is not primarily a follower of Jesus. It is not primarily uh, obeying Jesus's commands. It is about being linked and united to him. It's a much more vibrant and real connection right. than merely a decision can summarize. Right. Or simply something as it's not merely just the forgiveness of sins. Praise God, that's a glorious piece, but there's mm. so much more. And I know you, again, you talked about this idea of union with Christ. Yeah, that we are united to Christ for all his benefits. So everything Jesus has, we are called heirs of. Mm. And so that certainly means that we are heirs of the forgiveness in his atonement, but we are also heirs of his full righteousness. We are called the first fruits of his resurrection, that we are people that are raised up in him and made whole again. The fact that he is making all things new, right. that we are going to be ushered into not just heaven in a cloud or in a distant place somewhere, but that we're actually going to be ushered into a recreated heavens and earth mm. is kind of the fuller picture of what salvation right. is. And so if we miss that and we reduce it down to merely a decision point, what ends up happening is we reorient the gospel, the good news, and the gospel primarily becomes good advice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the gospel is not good advice. The, I mean, there is wisdom in the gospel as it's applied, but primarily the gospel is good news about what Christ has done for us, not what we do for him. Amen. Yeah. And so to reorient salvation around a decision point or how much faith did we really have at that point in time? Or did we really believe, hey, I fell back and I backslid for a time, but then I rededicated my life. There are so many young people in our community who are on the uh, nauseating roller coaster of the ups and downs of spiritual life, the, the mountaintops and in the valleys, who reduce their salvation to 
how am I doing with Jesus today? Mm. And God, by his grace, wants us to reorient our view of salvation around what Christ is doing in us, not what we're doing for him. So why is it that if our hope is in our faith, we will not make it? You mentioned that last night. Speak into that a little bit. Yeah. So faith is vital. We want to say that again. Uh, It is important that you repent and believe. Jesus is inviting you into trusting him. But faith is not the object of our faith. It is ultimately the work of Jesus that saves us. And our faith is the uniting glue whereby we receive the benefits of his work. And so if we're tethered in our faith and in our assurance and in our confidence for uh, the Christian life to what we do in the ways in which we respond to Jesus, we're actually getting the gospel backwards. We're putting ourselves at the center of the story of whether or not we're successful Christians or not, rather than where the gospel orients Jesus at the center of the story. And that what he has done through his life in obedience and faithfulness in his death and uh, both active and passive obedience in his death, and then in the resurrection and ascension in his reign is really the story of our success. So if we're tethered, um, I said this last night, if we're tethered in faith to ourselves and to our decision into how faithfully we're following Jesus, into our sanctification, which is one aspect of salvation, then ultimately we're free climbing in the Christian life. And that is a terrible place to be (laughs) Um, because when you free climb, you free fall and it's deadly. There are a lot of believers in our community, people who still profess faith in Jesus, but ultimately are just crushed in their walks with Jesus because they've so tried to impress Jesus with the way they're living. And so it's really uh, that's really a fruit, that despondence, that depression, the spiritual depression uh, and anxiety is primarily a fruit of putting our faith in our faith and mm. not in Jesus. Mm, not the object of our faith. Exactly. How do we know when we don't understand the weight of salvation? I mean, you, you kind of touched on that a little bit of maybe there's a little anxiety, we're, we're putting too much on the strength of our faith. But how do you know as a pastor, if you're counseling somebody, when they don't understand the weight of salvation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it manifests itself in a variety of ways. I think that some people go the path of apathy. And so they're kind of nominal, what we would call, you know, in kind of Christianese circles, kind of lukewarm uh, Christians. Um, And really, that is uh, a way in which they have mitigated against the weight of salvation and the weight of what it means to belong to Jesus. And and they're kind of intentionally being half-hearted because they really can't kind of deal with the weight of what they're being called into. Um, I think there are other ways that people who are maybe a little bit more older brother in their spirit, who are achievers, who want to impress God with their obedience— But when they are faced truly with their own rebellion and how deep their rebellion runs, and they're faced by the fracture of sin that runs so deeply, not just in them, but in the world, then they either go one of two ways. 
in following this idea of the weight of salvation. They either get really puffed up and live in this kind of cloud, um, ethereal, ivory tower world of Christianity where Jesus makes you successful and he makes you impressive and he makes you powerful. And by the way, he makes you beautiful and he makes you wealthy. And that's just detached from that pain. They're trying to avoid that pain again. Mm -hmm. Or unfortunately, somebody who has not fully felt the weight of salvation and not fully rested in Jesus when there is that weight, they run to, again, that despondency, uh, the feeling of being crushed. The They may privately profess faith in Jesus, but they're not a part of any Christian community anymore. They've kind of given up because they've been on the rat race, the rat wheel of trying to follow Jesus for so long, and they're just exhausted. And that's when Jesus's invitation in the gospel that says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's where that restfulness of salvation that is in the Lord and that is not in me is so essential right. for us to run in with the invitation of grace again, not a grace that says, okay, God will help you be a better you, a better version of you, a more Christian version of you, a more faithful version of you, but that Jesus, as we see in Galatians 2.20, that he's inviting us out of ourselves, right? that we are no longer identified principally with ourselves, but in Christ, that we are new creations, that we have passed away, and that we are now in Christ, and that my hope is in him and not in ourselves. Right. One of the things you talked about that that spurs hope and should cause us to rejoice is this idea of God's sovereignty. Mm. And I know you talked on a little bit of that last night. So so talk a little bit of that today. What What is God's sovereignty and, and why should that, uh, for the believer, cause us to rejoice and celebrate? Yeah, sovereignty is uh, a really heavy and hot button kind of topic uh, among Christians. And it, and it really is sad uh, that it's that way. And it's probably because uh, the concepts of sovereignty have been corrupted by determinists or what we might call hyper-Calvinists, people who assume a kind of robotic, mechanistic version of what it means to believe in sovereignty. And man, the Bible is very clear that that is not God's version of sovereignty. Here's where the good news of sovereignty comes in. It's twofold we talked about last night. One is just the ultimate care and governance of God over all things, that we don't have to be afraid because there are rogue uh, atheist molecules in the world that are not under the reign of God, that are not under his power, and that somehow if uh, those were the case, then we would be fearful because there's something that ultimately could challenge God for supremacy, and then they would ultimately be God. And that's where we see mythology and other forms of ancient religions that have kind of wrestled with that concept. But the Bible is very clear that God's sovereignty is a comfort because he has authority over everything, all of creation, seen and unseen. And so there's a comfort in that because we know God is good and we are not. 
even when we wrestle with feeling uh, the brokenness and pain of this world and the rebellion in our own hearts and the, the abuse of others and the injustices that are present in the world. But God is good and we are not. And so we can rest in his sovereign goodness even when we're confused and don't understand. Right. So there's that absolute sovereignty that's a comfort to his people. But we talked about last night, specifically related to soteriology, one of the gifts of being united to Jesus. Ephesians 1 is very clear that one of the gifts of being united to Jesus is that actually in this marvelous, mysterious, eternal way, we were united to Jesus even prior to faith in the decree of God that he knew us. And man, I love the way Paul says this. He placed his lavish love upon us and that he predestines us out of that affection. So God's sovereignty and predestination uh, is not a cold, deterministic, arbitrary choosing, but it is primarily God's eternal love marking out his people, Mm. that he is understood that we are going to exist someday and that he longs for the day of our experience of that union when we come to faith in Jesus. But even before that time, he has placed his love upon us. So in that sense, not only is uh, sovereignty and the sovereignty of God's predestination a general confidence builder, but it is the anchor of assurance. Because when we are in the throes of our sanctification, and sanctification, another benefit of soteriology, um, is the ongoing messy process of how the Holy Spirit forms us into and restores the image of Jesus in us. Right. And um, so when we're in that up and down, back and forth, two steps forward, one step back experience that is called sanctification, then the anchor of our assurance is not how far we've progressed in getting better. Right. But what Paul points us to in Ephesians 1 is the anchor when you're fearful is the fact that God has known you and placed his love upon you and that you can't out sin his love. And faithfulness. One of the, and you mentioned this last night, I think it just was a great illustration of, of you talked about your kids, mm-hmm. uh, of, of before they were born, uh, that you love them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they were to mess up or, or, or make a mistake, that, that you could say, hey, sweetheart, I loved you before you did any of this. My, my love, I loved you before you were born. And how that is, as you just talked about, a loving uh, and, and comforting thing. And that's what, what Paul's doing there is it's a comforting thing. It's a rejoicing thing and, and a hopeful and secure thing. Absolutely. And I mean, as a matter of fact, this morning I was correcting one of my children. And after we spent some time together walking through my ask and request of his obedience and his failure and his repentance, I'm very quick to say to him, uh, hey, buddy, do you know that I love you when you obey me? And he says, yes, daddy. And I said, do you know that I love you when you disobey me? And he says, yes, daddy. Mm. That's part of our liturgy Mm. of living out the gospel together because he knows, just like what you said, I didn't start loving him when he started acting rightly. Um, I started loving him before he even actually knew that he was a 
a person, uh, that he was conscious of his own being, that I had placed my love upon him as his father. And obviously, my love for my children is imperfect. It's fallible. My correction is fallible. And I oftentimes fail and I'm foolish and erratic. God's fatherhood and his care for us is never like that. Mm. And so when we are fearful, just like our children, when they disobey, then there's a natural sense that they are afraid, have I lost the love of my father? Have I lost that? Will he still love me? And we do the same thing in following our heavenly father, that there's a natural tendency when we are guilty for it to shift to shame. And those are different things. Guilt is wrong. It's wrongdoing. It's, it's, it's up more objective. And shame is primarily subjective, that where I feel that I am now a wrong person and that it has kind of attempted to define me newly and wrongly. And when we disobey, we feel that tension. We feel the anxiety of, man, Am I now defined by my failure rather than what God says about me? And God rushes in with the assurance of his eternal love, his lavish love. One of the things we talk about just in the phraseology of Ephesians 1 is the word lavish. And I think that for some of us as Christians just need to sit with that word for a minute. Right. Because we tend as Christians to think that God is up in heaven and when he is distributing love, uh, that it comes in the form of eyedroppers. You know, <laughs> that he's a minimalist when right. it comes to love. He's, he's very judicious in uh, spreading his love out there. Um, and he wants to make sure it hits all the right spots. And, and God is a God who is lavish in his love. It's not the vision of eyedroppers. It is the visions of buckets that God is pouring out his love on his people and has so before the foundation of the world. And so when I come into the process of experiencing salvation and especially the ongoing process of my own formation that is messy, then it's really important for me to abide, to marinate, as it were, in the lavish pool and well of God's grace. And, and you talked about, and you mentioned this here a little bit, but you talked about this last night, that, that a, a fruit really of or, or, or response to that doctrine of predestination is, is as you said, it's assurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's the comforting thing. If you, you biblically understand this doctrine of God's sovereignty and predestination, that, as you said, there is an assurance and the Lord's that he has lavished his love on us. Yeah, I mean Paul is pumped about predestination. Right. I mean, and so I encouraged the students last night. Hey, there's a lot here and we know that there's been misuse of categories categories of free will and determinism and sovereignty and choice and man there's there, all of that stuff is messy and it should be kind of dug into. But the overarching measure of whether or not we are biblical in our concept of predestination is that does our heart follow the heart of the apostle when he's teaching it? Mm. So if we're to understand rightly the truth of predestination, that God is not just 
interested in capturing our intellects as though we are just walking around as heads, but that he is also interested in capturing our affections. Right. I mean, we see that in Jesus when he summarizes obedience as love. Hey, here's the Ten Commandments. Well, how do I summarize them? Love God and love neighbor. Wait a second. I thought it was about believing and obeying. It is. Now you're making it about love. Yes. Those things hold together because truth and love hold together in the economy of grace. And so what is truthful is also capturing our heart and affections. And that is so true in Paul's uh, description of predestination in Ephesians 1. Yeah. I actually read this morning, it was John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments of, of this. That, that, that there's a coupling to, to that, as you said. So you spoke on this last night uh, of kind of what providence is. And so in God's sovereignty, speak on the difference between predestination and then God's providence. Yeah. So providence is the category of God's sovereignty whereby he governs all things. It goes back to the idea that we were talking about earlier about the kind of absolute sovereignty. So providence is the ways in which God carries out his sovereign eternal decree through primarily secondary means, choices, and freedoms and loves in the world. That is providence. Mm. So we see that in the negative in a place in Genesis like Joseph's life. And the summary of Joseph's life, we're told in Genesis, is what man intended for evil, God intended for good. That is a statement of providence. That is a statement that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over imprisonment. He's sovereign over kings. He's sovereign over love. He's sovereign over prayer. So providence is the overarching care of God in the world. And that's primarily carried out in secondary ways. And what that means is there's ways in which God acts unilaterally where he just does something. Boom, God shows up. That's also part of his providence. But the normal way God shows up is through human agency or through Uh, events in the world, even though those are natural events or our choices or our prayers or our love or our missteps or our failure, our rebellion, God cares over all those. Predestination is a specific category of sovereignty that relates to salvation. It is God's sovereign care over the choosing and loving and setting apart of his people to save them from their sins. Which, and you mentioned this last night when we talk about providence, but what that means is that that our prayers, I think you said this, that, that our prayers really help shape the fabric of eternity, that uh, we need to pray. It's, it's not this concept of the frozen chosen, uh, but that in God's providence, in his sovereignty, that we are to do, to work, to pray, and the Lord uses that uh, in profound ways for his kingdom. Yeah, it's part of the marvelous mystery of the economy of God's grace that he invites finite people into his sovereign, infinite plan. There is this amazing mystery of the ways in which God invites us through our prayers and through our affections, through our evangelism, that we actually participate in the not yet of the kingdom of God. and. 
how God holds into tension the fact that he has ordained before the foundation of the world, and then he uses our choices in time and space in the 21st century is mind-blowing and beyond our mathematics and our comprehension. But the reality is, and as I was encouraging the students last night, we hold those things in this redemptive tension that it's part of our faith and just to be frank, honesty, to recognize that we are weak and frail and temporal and fragile and finite as humans. It's really thoughtful and honest to be that. And when we try to make ourselves supermen and women or super Christians, we're actually undermining the grace of God and his invitation into his story rather than making it about us and our story. Mm, That's good. Let's go back to uh, because we wrote this down last night as you're talking about assurance that this idea of of covenant comes along with with promise. And so just speak a little bit on, on covenant, what it is. And why that's important as us as as believers, as we read scripture, to understand this idea of covenant. Yeah. The concept of covenant is throughout the Bible, from the beginning to the end. God never relates to any of his people or creation apart from covenant. It's that big of category, biblically. And so when we're to understand soteriology, when we're to understand our salvation, even when we're to understand our invitation into believing, it happens in the context of covenant. And the word covenant is the Hebrew word for cut. So the the primary illustration of a covenant in the Old Testament is the cutting apart of the sacrifice And what would happen is the two parties would pass through this sacrifice and make a vow and pledge to one another to death do us part, to say, hey, I'm binding myself to you and you're binding yourself to me. And so the concept of covenant is vital for us to understand the assurance that you mentioned because God has pledged himself to his people. God is not indiscriminate and arbitrary in his affections. Uh, Jesus didn't come with this kind of generic salvation and that he hoped someone believed, but he came to save his people from their sins. Mm. That is covenant language. And that Jesus calls himself the mediator of a new and better covenant. The book of Hebrews goes through and uses phraseology about covenant all the time because it talks about the sacrifice and the sacrificial system. And it says that the blood of bulls and goats is not as effective as the blood of Jesus. They were just pictures. They were never actually effective in releasing us from sin. They were just a foreshadowing of the one who would be cut for us that we might have life in him. And by the way, here's one of the things about the cutting of the covenant. Christianity is a gory religion. It talks a lot about blood. And for some of our friends, that's really a turnoff and (laughs) and it's confusing. You're like, we're talking way too much about blood here. Why is there so much blood? Uh, Apparently in the Passover year, one of the historians of the Old Testament era, the first century Jewish community that on an average, there would be 255,000 lambs sacrificed during the year of 
Passover. Holy cow. Yeah. And so there was just blood everywhere pouring off the temple. It was not, it was a messy place to be. The temple was not this pristine kind of church building like, hey, don't mess up anything. Don't get it was bloody nasty. And here's why blood matters. Okay. Not just because God is gory or wants to kind of press it in our faces that we deserve death, but actually it is the invitation into believing in life. Mm. Because blood is the carrier, it is the highway of life. It is the way that we get oxygenated. Um, it's the ways that we carry life to our body. That's what blood is. And so the covering of blood is a picture of the twofold dynamic of the obedience of Jesus, the, the active obedience and the passive obedience. The passive obedience, because he died and he spilt his blood, but the active obedience, because we are covered then in his life. Mm-hmm. And all of that is on the basis of this unbreakable promise that God has made to his people that he has never given up on, that he made that initial promise, at least in foreshadowing to Adam in Genesis 3.15, in the prototype of the gospel, where we are told that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, even though he's going to be bruised, he's going to be cut. And then we see that reiterated in Genesis 15, in the calling of Abraham and Abraham unto the nations, that he is going to have this seed that ultimately see is foreshadowed to be sacrificed. We see Isaiah prophesying again about this one who will become the suffering servant for us. We see in the Psalms the pictures of one who is going to be crushed for our iniquities. And then we see, obviously, Jesus who hangs on the cross. And then the anthem of heaven in the new heavens and the new earth is blessed is the lamb who was slain. That's all covenant language. It's all the assurance that Christ is the promised one to save us from our Mm. sins. One of the things you you said last night that I love that you said that we were saved by works, uh, but not by our works, but by the work of, of, of the slaughtered lamb by Jesus, uh, yeah. which is which is beautiful. Well, Hunter, uh, appreciate it, man. Thanks. We, we know all about predestination now, so I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you so much for Thanks. letting me be here. Thanks, man. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com.com.